0: Welcome to a Retrograde Orbit Radio special. Uh, Circumstances are such that Dave and I weren't able to get together to record a regular episode this week, but we didn't want to leave you without something to listen to. So what you are about to hear is something from The Vault. This is a previously unreleased pilot episode of a Retrograde Orbit Radio project that we recorded... Uh, two or three years ago, I think. Uh, it was mostly written by producer Mark and features the voices of many of the retrograde orbit radio regulars, uh, plus some of our extended network that aren't normally featured on the shows. If you, uh, if you like this, please do let us know. Um, it's a project that we really enjoyed and would like to get back to at some point, uh, for no other reason than to justify all the time we spent into writing a full alternate history of the United States. Um, anyway, so without any further introduction, here is episode one of a documentary series about a fictional version of America's pastime. Welcome to Underground Baseball. You are listening to The Deep Diamond, a podcast series examining the history and mystery of underground baseball, the league which its proponents claim represents both the true legacy and pure future of the greatest of all of the stick and ball games, baseball. The Deep Diamond series is presented by Retrograde Orbit Radio under the direction of Mark Eric. My name is Matt Jay and today's episode is The Old Ball Game. Baseball, the national pastime. A sport indelibly tied to the fabric of a nation, a bright, colorful thread knitted throughout the fabric of our history, packed with heroes and villains, victories and defeats, glory and ignominy. Yet, for all of its lore and legend, we do not truly know when the sport began or how. Historians tell us that Alexander Cartwright is the founder of modern baseball by way of the Knickerbocker Club, but the truth, as always, is deeper. Much, much deeper. Baseball began underground, and still thrives there today, if you know how to look. This series will tell the stories of underground baseball. Future episodes will unveil the legend of Fitz Topper and the controversial banning of the Topper Ball, Ginny Brown and the Rockford Herons, baseball's first female MVP and first team to field nine female starters, and the mother of the forest, the sacred bat of impossible Willie Calaveras, who claimed to have carved it himself from a branch he harvested from the fabled Great Sequoia shortly before it was stripped of its bark and left to die by opportunistic California entrepreneurs. But today we start with the most basic questions. What is underground baseball? Where did it come from? Where is it played? Who watches it? Who plays it? Deep Diamond Episode 1, The Old Ball Game. According to historian Elza Tremor, underground baseball began in the early 1800s, four decades prior to what is widely recognized as the start of organized baseball.
1: Well, they say that the going theory now is modern baseball began with Alexander Cartwright and the Knickerbocker Rules in New York around, uh, 1845, but Cartwright was just a failed underground baseball manager and brought the game above.
0: Now, what about Abner Doubleday? Wasn't he credited with creating baseball for a long time? We've discredited that story, isn't that right?
1: (laughs) Oh Yeah, yes, that's right. Uh, Doubleday was um, major general in the Union Army uh, Civil War, and uh, certainly had many other fascinating stories to tell.
0: Uh, Sure, how they came to call him 48 Hours?
1: (laughs) Uh, How he received the nickname he hated for the remainder of his life. At least uh, that's a story he could recite. But somehow, they say he invented baseball. And that's an outright falsehood.
0: Okay, now how did this myth get started?
1: Uh, The uh, Mills Commission. Uh, Mills? Abraham G. Mills. He was the president of the National League in the late 1890s, and he spearheaded a commission to determine the origins of baseball, hence the Mills Commission.
0: Uh, They said it was Doubleday.
1: Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, Their final report said, and I'll quote it here, "...in the years to come, in the view of hundreds of thousands of people who are devoted to baseball, and the millions who will be, Abner Doubleday's fame will rest evenly, if not quite as much." upon the factor that he was its inventor, as upon his brilliant and distinguished career as an officer in the Federal Army.
0: Well, I, I guess they were right in a manner of speaking. He was remembered much more for baseball, at least for a long time.
1: A yeah, Self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: But how did they get it so wrong?
1: Well, oh, I mean, that's that's a number of reasons, but the primary cause was relying a bit too heavily on the testimony of another man named Abner, Abner Graves.
0: Abner Graves, a man of almost no renown, whose only footnote in history comes from his presence in the final report of the Mills Commission. A letter from Graves, written to the editor of the Akron Beacon Journal, and cited extensively by the Mills Commission, reads in part,
2: Dear Sir, I notice in Saturday's Beacon Journal a question as to the origin of baseball from the pen of A.G. Spalding and requesting data on the subject be sent to Mr. J.E. Sullivan, 15 Warren Street, New York. The American game of baseball was invented by Abner Doubleday of Cooperstown, New York, either the spring prior or following the Log Cabin and Hard Cider Campaign of General Harrison for President. Said Abner Doubleday being then a boy pupil of Green Select School in Cooperstown, and the same who, as General Doubleday, won honor at the Battle of Gettysburg in the Civil War. The pupils of Otsego Academy and Green Select School were then playing the old game of town ball in the following manner. A tosser stood beside the home goal and tossed the ball straight upward about six feet for the batsman to strike at on its fall.
3: Graves then went on to describe in no small amount of detail the rules of an organized early version of baseball as it's known today.
0: This is Sally Everton, the current play-by-play voice of the Wheeling Greys, and author of Through the Seams, a book which collects various stories of underground baseball players who washed out and ultimately ended up making lives to themselves above.
3: So Ebner Graves was part of the second or third crop of underground baseball players, the kids, who helped fill out rosters as the league slowly expanded from 6 to 12 teams in the 1810s through the 1830s. Now he'd found the league as a boy, and like most fans, just fell in love with it. He had some talent, Enough to eventually crack the lineup of the Portsmouth Jackrabbits in the last decade before the league's first expansion, but not enough to really last. When Portsmouth signed a young German immigrant named Walter Burkhardt in 1837, he quickly replaced Graves on their starting roster, and would go on to become Portsmouth's first fide superstar. Graves hung on for another season or two as a replacement player before taking a full-time job above. He never stopped loving the game, though, and he was a regular attender at Jackrabbit games for the rest of his life. Abner Graves watched as baseball slowly migrated above, mostly thanks to fans of the Underground League who organized their own games in Sandalots, and also thanks to washed out players like himself who still loved the game. He took to telling outlandish, made-up tales about baseball to anyone who would listen, presumably just for his own entertainment.
0: So, the Mills Commission falls for the fanciful tales of Abner Graves, a fringe-level shortstop who played a few seasons with the Portsmouth Jackrabbits before making a living as a mining engineer?
1: And so propagates one of the greatest and most persistent baseball myths of our time.
0: But current, more thorough studies now credit Alexander Cartwright.
1: <laughs> Cartwright no more invented baseball than Doubleday did. But he was instrumental in bringing the game above and spreading the rules through the Knickerbocker Club, so that much is accurate. And
0: you said Cartwright was also a failed underground player.
1: No, 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 no. Cartwright never played underground. He was a manager for a while of the Bangor Vikings.
0: Back to Sally.
3: So in the earliest years of the underground league, Alexander Cartwright's father, Alexander Sr., was a tremendously successful manager. First he played a few seasons with the Wheeling Greys, but when Tommy Minecart McTaggart, who was a first baseman for the Portsmouth Jackrabbits, shattered both his knees in a collision at home plate during an off-season scrimmage, Cartwright's playing career was cut short. But his cunning as a manager was legendary. The senior Cartwright won four championships when he was the manager of the Syracuse Salt. He was also famous for his enormous laughter, which was once reported by a fan as shaking every bleacher and set in the stadium for five uninterrupted minutes. His son grew up around the game, of course, always in the dugouts, always hanging out with the players. Eventually, his dad made him an assistant coach, He was on the staff during the third championship run, and then the banger Vikings signed him on as their manager. Now the younger Cartwright had all of his father's energy, but none of his cunning. He ran the Vikings into dead last, and was axed after two miserable seasons. He had too much pride to slink back to his father, but no other team would offer him a job.
0: So Cartwright watches out of the Underground League.
1: But he couldn't leave the game. He loved the game. So he brought it with him to the Knickerbocker Club. He made a few tweaks to the rules, of course, but the game was basically the same. And then the rest? Is more or less as modern baseball historians have it, yes. The game grew on its own course, becoming what we know now as Major League Baseball.
0: But Underground...
1: Well, the game goes on. Somewhat different than what you see in modern baseball, of course, owing to over 200 years of evolutionary differences, but I'd say essentially the same sport.
0: Okay, okay, so that explains Doubleday and Cartwright, but the Underground League was operating for a little while before the Knickerbocker Club popped up, right?
1: Uh, four decades before, give or take.
0: Okay, so how did that begin? What... ...are the origins of baseball in America.
1: Well, to understand that, you're going to need to understand the Girard Fund.
0: Stephen Girard was one of the richest men in American history. An uneducated French boy, a sea captain, son of another sea captain, who found himself in Philadelphia while on the run from a British fleet. And he settled there to make his fortune. Gerard became a banker, and when U.S. credit was flagging in the latter days of the War of 1812, he underwrote over 90% of the war loan issue. He is often credited as personally saving the country from financial ruin. At the time of his death, Girard was the wealthiest man in America. Adjusted for the time in which he lived, he is considered to be one of the top five wealthiest Americans of all time. Gerard had no children, and invested heavily in philanthropic endeavors. When he died, he bequeathed the vast majority of his fortune to charitable and municipal institutions.
1: So Gerard was fascinated by the rise of the bat and ball games in America during the very late 1700s and early 1800s. He was heavily involved with the number of boys' orphanages and boarding schools and would often observe the varied stickball games as they played One of the teachers at St. Crispin's School for Young Men, Oscar Haney, shared Gerard's fascination. They would spend hours watching the boys playing stickball games while discussing the improvements which could be made to the simple schoolyard rules. Gerard and Haney taught the boys several variations, cats, fives, batball. Every time one of them would hear of a new stickball game, they'd excitedly bring it to the boys at the school to teach them. Gerard even attempted to introduce them to La Soule, a very old French baton ball game, which was experiencing uh, something of a renaissance at the time in his home country.
0: And this eventually led the two to write rules for their own game.
1: More or less. Gerard and Haney tried introducing more complex rule systems to St. Crispin's, but, well, the kids never particularly took to them. They preferred the simpler, less formal versions being played in schoolyards across the East. One of the older boys, however, loved it. He joined Gerard and Haney in crafting the rules, which would eventually become the Game of Baseball. And this was... Robin McRae, the third father of baseball.
0: The following is a short excerpt from the book Throwing Like a Girl. The History of Women in Underground Baseball by Rachel Wells
1: Robin Red McRae was the best outfielder in underground baseball in its founding years. She was exceptionally fast and had an uncannily quick first step. Many of her contemporaries swore she started moving before the batter even hit the ball. She wasn't the strongest hitter, but she held her own, and her prowess in the field made her untouchable.
0: we could dedicate a full episode of this series to Robin, but let's stop here for just a minute to talk about her. You said she was called a father of baseball.
1: I did. It, uh, well, it was sort of a nickname of sorts that the early players gave to Gerard, Haney, and McRae. A familial honorific, if you will. And it stuck. It stuck to such a degree that underground baseball fans still talk about the three fathers as part of baseball's history. It's, uh... What's well, Laurie, you know? Now, but Red McCrae was a woman. Yes, an Irish orphan. She was taken to St. Crispin's by her grandmother. Her grandmother knew she was dying, and they had no other family in America, so she took her to St. Crispin's. Now, St. Crispin's at the time was an all boys school. A cross between a school and a public orphanage, really. It had a reputation for taking in orphans in addition to regular student boarders. It was an elite educational institution with a philanthropic foster arm, making it by far the best opportunity for children without parents. But it was very difficult to get into.
0: Okay, so Granny coached a five-year-old Robin McRae to hide her gender and then enrolled her in St. Crispin's.
1: Where she'd make a habit of besting every other student in the school at any sport or game she played. She was an elite athlete. When Gerard and Haney started developing baseball, she ate it up. It didn't take long for her to become the third member of their little cabal.
0: But she kept hiding her gender for years. She was well past her playing days before anyone knew, is that
1: right? Yes. Well, I before she discussed it publicly, anyway. She had confided in a number of people over the years, however.
0: Now, was this just, I don't know, a sign of the times, so to speak?
1: Well, yes and no. It was, but Gerard was particularly concerning in this area. He spoke often of helping poor and orphan children, but very specifically white male children. Okay,
0: so she hid her gender until he died.
1: Yes. Gerard passed away in 1831, the 27th year of underground baseball's official existence as a league. Less than four months later, Robin opened up.
3: By that point, McRae was the manager of the Philadelphia Baggers, one of the original two teams in underground baseball. It was the team she'd played for for her entire career. She showed up for preseason practice in a dress, and to their credit, her players never balked. She was a legend in the sport, and they were just coming off a championship season, so she already had their trust. Word got around quickly though there were still only six teams in the league then all based in the east and the managers got together within a week to discuss they emerged from that meeting after only an hour and when asked for comment one of them uttered what was to become the unofficial slogan for the sport even now talent plays
0: So, nobody had a problem with a female manager?
1: Well, maybe not nobody. I mean, somebody always has a problem. But Red was known to everyone, and she practically invented the game. No one was going to kick her out. Talent plays, they said. Talent plays. And just like that, any barriers to underground baseball fell. Within a decade, players from all sorts of backgrounds could be found on every team in the league. The sport had always played more for the love of the game than anything else, and that's what it was in the Underground League. So maybe it was a more natural transition.
0: Now, I want to get into that a bit more, the love of the game idea. But let's back up a bit first and finish out the story. So Gerard, Haney, and McCrae cook up a bunch of rules together for a sport they're calling baseball. But then what? How, how does it get underground?
1: Well, I mean, as I said, the boys at St. Crispin's didn't particularly care for the formal rules, but the three fathers were convinced they were onto to something. So Haney, who uh, by this point is working in one of Gerard's financial interests in New York, he started pitching the idea to friends. Likewise, Gerard McRae scouted for interested people in Philadelphia. They eventually turned up two teams of ten players and planned for a scrimmage match in May of 1798. This would become the first ever baseball game played between the Syracuse Salts, coached by Oscar Haney, and the Philadelphia Baggers, coached by Stephen Girard, and featuring a young red headed phenom in center field.
0: Okay, now and I feel like this is a very important question, Elza. Mm-hmm. Where did they play?
1: Ah, therein lies one of the most significant factors in shaping the sport, right?
0: I mean, obviously, the sport is called underground baseball, and we've been talking about it for some time now and haven't properly addressed the biggest question there is.
1: That's right. The first baseball game was played literally underground. Gerard needed a place to house his experimental game, and wide-open property is a bit hard to come by in Philadelphia. He certainly could have purchased land outside the city, and he very nearly did, but but he instead decided to entertain a particularly eccentric suggestion from an acquaintance of his named Philip Ginger.
4: The Lehigh Coal Navigation Company was a mining and transportation company that operated in Pennsylvania throughout the 19th and 20th centuries.
0: This is Richard Almond, rail historian and author of a number of books about the history of the railroad in the United States.
4: It was founded in 1822 by two fellows named uh, Erskine Hazard and Josiah Wyatt, who would then go on uh, to become major players in the Industrial Revolution in the United States, uh, playing a key role, developing transportation and mining infrastructure uh, all throughout the country. Innovating engineering projects opened America's eyes wide to the wonder of anthracite coal. Now, that was a tagline that uh, Josiah White would use when he was uh, making his sales pitches. He did a fair amount of work uh, in state legislatures, interestingly enough. Uh, he'd travel up and down the country. Now, obviously, he couldn't travel by rail, but he'd travel up and down the country uh, trying to get concessions for them to build railways in. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard. But uh, this was this thing. He would—the wonders of anthracite coal. Because you got to remember, prior to this, people are mostly burning uh, uh, wood— Pete? At this point, coal is a major technological innovation. Uh, But the humble beginnings of this company were uh, not out west, but in the humble mountains of Carbon County, Pennsylvania. A hunter named uh, Philip Ginter discovered coal on Sharp Mountain in 1792. Now, a company named the Lehigh Coal Mine Company moved into the area, purchased 10,000 acres of the surrounding land. Now, They, not under the expert guidance of uh, Mr. White, were beset with uh, management, infrastructure issues, uh, labor, supply, uh, permits, anything you can think of, uh, they had problems with it. So they never really properly took off as a business interest. But what they did do was sell a lot of their early stock to White and Hazard, who would then go on to found their own much more successful company.
0: so this miner knew Stephen Gerrard.
1: Well, so the legend goes, anyway. That part's a bit lost to time. Maybe it was somebody else connected to the Lehigh Coal Mine Company. Whatever the case, this fledgling company, which would later sell out to a much more successful company, had also explored mining considerations in the Philadelphia area. There was no coal to speak of, but... One of the early explorative ventures had led to the discovery of a simply enormous naturally occurring cavern less than half a mile beneath the surface of Philadelphia. The company had abandoned any interest in mining it years before, but someone somewhere connected to it knew Gerard and pitched him the idea. The idea of playing baseball in
0: a cave?
1: Well, maybe... It's more likely that Gerard bought the rights to the cavern without ever bringing up the notion of using it for sport, but clearly, he was enamored. Okay, but,
0: Elsa, I mean, let's be honest, isn't that a bit... silly?
1: Oh no, it's a lot silly. I mean, it's incredibly (laughs) expensive, it's decidedly unnecessary, but, you know, he had the means and the wealth to pull it off, He bought the permits, the engineers, and over the course of a half a year, he created a stadium beneath the earth, to which the only entrance was a slowly sloping tunnel located in the basement of one of his Philadelphia holdings. So, who are we to say it's silly?
0: (laughs) Okay, so they've constructed a secret basement entrance to an underground baseball stadium. Uh, yes. That is unbelievable.
1: It truly is. And the secrecy became part of the fun. In those early years, underground baseball was something like a secret society. Word was quietly passed among the initiated to potential new recruits. A few friends, family members or otherwise interested parties were invited down to watch. And they too joined in the nascent conspiracy.
0: Okay, now this brings us back to the notion that we had put on hold earlier. This love
1: of the game. Yes. Underground baseball began as a cross between a vanity project and a goofy private joke between extremely rich friends. (laughs) And it grew up in exactly that spirit. It was created by people who had a passion for it, and who passed on that passion to those who might share. Guarding the secret became part of the fun, and it was eventually ingrained into the game itself. Underground baseball was a private club for true believers. Which sounds, and you have to admit this,
0: kind of like a cult. A bit.
1: A bit. A uh, a cult of baseball. It's uh, somewhat of a fair assessment, but played, as they say, for the love of the game. Within a single generation, Red McRae further opened the gates, and underground baseball becomes a sport truly open to anyone who loves the game always passed on in secret to true believers of any race or creed. All you had to do was love the game.
0: Okay, now let's circle back to that first game. Gerard hires a bunch of engineers and construction workers to build this insane underground baseball palace and invites Haney down for a game.
1: they had been planning it for some time. Haney didn't know about the field until he showed up but he'd been recruiting and training his team in Syracuse to play against Gerard McRae's team in Philly. That first game only had a dozen spectators or so, but it featured some of the players who would go on to become proper sports legends. McRae, of course, Gabe Elbows Ray, and Alexander Cartwright Sr.
0: Cartwright, whose son would eventually take the game above.
1: One and the same. The senior Cartwright was also, by all accounts, the loudest voice in the room during that manager's meeting, which affirmed bred McCrae. The Talent Plays meeting? The Talent Plays meeting. Anyway, that first game was an apparently an enormous success in whatever standard Gerard and his friends were using to measure. They played again every weekend for two months, and Gerard eventually commissioned the construction of a similar stadium beneath Syracuse for Haney and his team. And from there? And from there, after those first successful scrimmages, interest started growing in the game. Gerard's Baggers in Philadelphia and Haney's salts in Syracuse each had enough players to fill three proper teams. Over the next five years, Gerard built an additional four stadiums. And in 1804, the inaugural season of the Underground Baseball League kicked off with six teams.
0: Okay, so we have Philadelphia and Syracuse, of course. Uh, who else is joining by this point?
1: Well, there's the Wheeling Grays, uh, the Jackrabbits out of Portsmouth, the Burlington Rattlers, and the Bangor Vikings.
0: And how did these cities get picked?
1: Honestly, I'm I'm not sure we can tell you. Maybe Gerard had business interests there. Maybe they could get players to move there. We do know that the Bangor team happened because somehow Gerard had found out about a cabin there he could use. Now that's the Bang Bang... Now, I might well be
5: biased, but for my money, the Bang Bang is the best stadium in the underground.
0: Janda Wolf is the current manager of the Banger Vikings. He's been a part of the franchise for nearly 50 years as a player, coach, and a manager.
5: Banger was one of the original six teams. In fact, it was the first stadium built after the original two in Philly and Syracuse. Mr. Gerard bought the land the cave sits on from the city council only a few years after the town had incorporated. Then, just like he do everywhere else, he spent an absurd amount of money hiring the folks he needed to make it work. There's a funny thing about the cavern under Banger, though. There's an enormous stalactite hanging from the roof in the rear of the cavern about 50 feet past the end of the outfield bleachers. So if a batter hit a home run hard enough at just the right spot, he would clear the black bleachers and nail the stalactite and it'd sound like a crazy gong. Something about the way it hangs or the acoustic of the cavern or something. I never, never really understood it myself, but I'll tell you this, ain't no feeling in the world better than cracking a rocket in the bang bang and hearing it hit that gong. That's it right there. The love of the game. And that's where the name comes from, you know? The crack of the bat and then the crack of the gong. Bang! Bang! Right? Didn't take long for the fans to start calling the stadium the Bang Bang. And the name just stuck.
0: What happened from there, after the first six teams were in place?
1: Well, they played a couple of seasons and interest kept growing. Eventually, hundreds of fans are showing up to watch these games. The average stadium Gerard built was optimistically constructed with bleacher seating for about 5,000 fans, but uh, it took a while before they were filling up.
0: But that's still the size of the stadiums today, right?
1: Yes, Gerard built six more stadiums for a total of 12 before he died, all east of the Mississippi, and constructed on the same basic principles. And when the Western expansion happened, they still followed those guidelines. And those are still the stadiums where the games are played today. 5,000 seats seems to be... It's just right, somehow. Stadiums are always full, and they feel intimate and close. Keeps up the secret club aspect, I presume.
0: So if all of these stadiums were built prior to Gerard's death, then that means he didn't head up the Western expansion, right?
1: That's correct. He had... As you said, he'd died by then. In fact, he was largely out of the day-to-day operations by 1810, as his growing business empire occupied more and more of his time. The league operated under the consortium control of the managers of the clubs for a little while, until it had grown large enough to need a commissioner.
0: Then this was Haney, right?
1: Well, it couldn't have been anyone else. Except maybe McRae, but she was still playing at the time. So in 1820, Haney became the first commissioner of underground baseball in its 16th official season. Ten years later, Gerard passed away, but not before arranging for an enormous sum of money to be stored as a trust for the ongoing operations of the league he so loved. True to the conspiratorial spirit of the league, he shrouded its true purpose in layers of paperwork and bureaucracy.
0: And this is the Girard Fund.
1: Ah, yes, the fabled Girard Fund. Managed since that time by whoever is the current commissioner of underground baseball. The interest on that money alone is enough to pay for the salaries of every player on all 12 original teams, as well as the seed to maintenance and upkeep of the stadiums and so on. So the salaries for all these players are controlled? Yes, that's right. Every player makes the same salary. It doesn't make any of them rich, but... It's certainly enough to keep them comfortable after they retire. And it helps ensure that nobody comes along to the league for financial reasons. Because if you play underground baseball, you play for For the the love love of of the game. game. (laughs) Okay, so what effect does this have on how the teams are built? With no big paychecks, are there any free agents? Not as such, no. Since everyone is paid the same, teams are built very differently than they are above. Scouts find players wherever they can. And players are free to sign with any team that offers them a roster spot. Once you sign, though, you're a lifer. With a few notable exceptions, players are generally only switching teams if they're part of a trade. And trades are a lot rarer than you'd expect. There's a lot of loyalty in underground baseball.
0: Okay, so Gerard dies in 1830, and his secret fund pays for the continued existence of underground baseball. How does it get out west?
1: Well, as the country spread further west, so did interest in underground baseball. Fans would move and spread the word. Eventually, a group of folks who moved from New York to Topeka petitioned the league to let them add a new team. Initially, the league rejected their request, citing the overwhelming financial obstacles. The Girard Fund was carefully managed, and, well, they didn't want to overextend it.
0: And this is where Mark Hopkins gets involved, right?
4: The Central Pacific Railroad was the most western piece of the first transcontinental railroad uh, connecting Utah to California. Now, once they finished this thing up, you could get from coast to coast in eight days.
0: Richard Almond again.
4: Now, the Central Pacific was built and financed uh, through the investment of four men. Uh, They are called the Big Four, sometimes the Associates, their business rivals were known to call them the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which is uh, colorful, but not entirely inaccurate. Uh, Anyways, these guys were named Leland Stanford, Collis Huntington, Charles Crocker, and Mark Hopkins. Now, Hopkins is only moderately successful back east where he's from, but he moves west and he eventually makes his fortune in the railroads as the eldest of these four principal investors in the Central Pacific Railroad. Now, uh, he served as company treasurer, and he was famous for his thriftiness and tight-fistedness. Uh, he was a final word of authority uh, for the rest of the company. He's the he's the money man. They said he'd skin a flea for its hide-and-tallow. Uh, he said he could squeeze 110 cents out of every dollar. Uh, now, Hopkins marries later in life, never has any children, Uh, Now, story goes that he never had children because he didn't want to spend any money on them. And this is kind of a, this becomes a thing for him. He's completely unwilling to part with any money uh, till the day he dies. There were a few exceptions uh, he makes for his wife, Mary. She uh, occasionally persuades her husband to finance projects of her own design. uh, The most notable of which is an enormous undertaking. uh, It's the construction of the ornate Hopkins Mansion at the top of San Francisco's Knob Hill.
1: Hopkins became a fan of underground baseball in the last decade or so of his life. Having learned about it from his wife, Mary Frances Sherwood, Mary was one of the only people who could convince that famously thrifty Mark to part with any substantial amount of money, and she'd fallen in love with the game while visiting family back east in New York. She became involved with the group who had petitioned for Western expansion.
0: Okay, I can see where this is going.
1: I think you can. Mary convinced her husband to use a portion of their vast wealth to enhance the Girard Fund. They matched the existing fund dollar for dollar. And with financing in place, the league expanded west.
0: Twelve more teams to match the twelve that were already in the east?
1: Yep, twelve more. The same twenty-four we have today. In the same east-west split.
0: And that's just the beginning of the story of Underground Baseball, an entity halfway between Sports League and Secret Society, housed in giant underground caverns where talent plays. What holds it all together? What makes this outlandishly tall tale possible? In the words of Jan DeWolf,
5: The love of the game.